Well, hey there, podpreneurs. Welcome to another bonus episode. Today, I'm lucky to chat with Matthew Weiss, and I'm so happy he agreed to stop by today and talk with us. Matthew Weiss is an incredibly talented engineer and is the recordist and mixer for singer-songwriter-producer Akon. Matthew was the recordist on Grammy-nominated and Spellman award-winning albums, and he's also the primary content provider for the Pro Audio Files. If this is your first time hearing about Matthew, you got to check out ProAudioFiles.com. It's packed full of educational content specializing in audio and music production. Matthew also has hundreds of videos available on YouTube that are incredibly informative and helpful. He really knows his stuff. Not only does he have an incredible ear, years of production experience, and a vast degree of knowledge, but he also happens to be wonderfully articulate and comprehensible. In addition to his work as an audio engineer, he's also had significant experience in the world of education. He taught as a guest instructor at Cornell University, Sonny Fredonia, Slate's Digital Audio Legends, Pro Studio Live, and Produce Like a Pro. I'm so excited to chat with Matthew all about podcasting for newcomers and those looking to improve their podcasts. We'll talk about microphones, preamps, interfaces, DAWs, compression, and a bit more. This is definitely an interview you want to take some notes from. Well, okay, let's get to it. Hey, Matthew, how's it going? Everything is good. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Let's uh, let's let's talk about audio quality and get these podcasts sounding good. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Before we dive into talking about gear and podcasting tips, for people who haven't seen your YouTube channel or who haven't heard of you, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. Well, my name is Matthew Weiss. I am the recordist and mixer for Akon. And I am a content provider for theproaudiofiles.com. How long have you been an audio engineer? Uh, professionally, about 12 years. Semi-professionally, maybe about five years before that. So uh, I've been I've been at it for a while. Yeah, and it's very obvious from your YouTube channel that you have a lot to offer in the way of uh, engineering knowledge, especially for, I would say, the more advanced audio recorder <laughs> and engineer. But that's what we really wanted to do is, is reach out to somebody who is a professional so that we can maybe dive into some common things that podcasters are concerned with, especially when they're first starting, which is what gear to buy. Uh-huh. And so first I wanted to talk about microphones. So with microphones, what recommendations do you have for like broadcast style or or podcast style microphones? Is there a difference between male and and female considerations? What are some of your favorites? Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. So there's a couple of levels of consideration when we're talking about microphones. The first is, um, you know, the actual quality of the mic itself. The second one is the quality relative to the vocalist, which is what you're saying, male or female. Uh, and it's even a little more nuanced than that. And then the third is the law of diminishing returns, which is how deep down the rabbit hole do you really want or need to go? So, I mean, I recommend getting the best microphone that you can if audio quality is really your only concern. That said, in the microphone world right now, things are extremely competitive. I've been hooked up with a company named Jay-Z Microphones. They sell microphones for around a thousand bucks that compete with any microphone, 3000 or greater. Our ultimate goal is clarity of the voice, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't have to compete with a music bed most of the time. We're not competing with self noise, even in the cheapest microphones. So, you know, I don't think that 
you have to go super expensive to get a good podcast recording. Middle of the pack, I recommend the Jay-Z microphones. Cheaper end, I'm a fan of Audio-Technica. More expensive end than, you know, getting into like the Neumanns and things like that. Male or female, again, that's how deep down the rabbit hole you want to go. It's more like bright versus bassy. And so if you have a bassy voice, you generally want a brighter microphone. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, a lot of times when people are first looking into microphones, they might be bewildered by what's the difference between a dynamic and a condenser microphone. Why might somebody want a dynamic microphone versus a condenser? There's a couple of reasons why a dynamic microphone is going to be a better choice. One being that if you're using a room that is not set up acoustically for recording, or is at least controlled to a certain degree. Like I can see that your room has some acoustic baffling going on uh, to control some of the reflections and things like that. So a condenser is going to act better in a treated space. A dynamic is going to reject more of the side information. It's only going to pick up what's directly in front. And so it rejects a little bit more of the room interaction. The other reason why dynamics are good is because the proximity effect is a little bit more pleasing than a cardioid uh, condenser. RE20s and SM7s in particular, uh, you can get pretty close to those and they will have bass buildup, but it's a little bit more even sounding than if you're to get right up close to a cardioid condenser. Mm, okay, yeah. With the proximity effect when you get super close to it, yeah. yeah. But then I guess, obviously, if you do have the ability to hang some curtains or get some cheap diffusion panels or something, then w would you usually recommend a condenser over a dynamic? Well, the first thing I would recommend is not worrying too much about diffusion panels. Um, diffusion can be nice, and if you're in a room that's sizable enough for it and you know what you're doing, then a diffusion panel can help keep some reflection in the room and some room tone in existence while making it a little bit more pleasing. That's the point of diffusion. But for the most part, when you're just setting yourself up, you really want to focus on absorption and just getting rid of any extraneous reverberant direct echoes that might mess with the audio quality. That's priority number one. Now, uh, in terms of why you would want a condenser, ultimately, what's going to give you a more natural and full representation of a sound is going to be a condenser microphone the vast majority of the time, particularly with voices. So if you want to catch a little bit of the air and space, you want to catch the nuance of the mouth noises and formants and things like that that are up in the higher register, you're just going to get a better response from the condenser and better transient response as well, which will help with the clarity of things. So, you know, dynamics always sound a little bit kind of like they're sort of like muffled slightly, whereas condensers sound mm -hmm. a little bit more open and honest. And then uh, to finish up with microphones, uh, what are your opinions on USB microphones? You'll notice I have the USB, the one you hear me through is this Blue Yeti. And these have gained massive popularity with podcasters, but there's obviously some drawbacks and things like that. I wanted to know your opinion on USB mics. Well, I can tell you right now why the Yeti is popular amongst podcasters, because it's really pulling the 1K range of your voice forward. The 1K to 3K range of a voice is where we most readily identify sounds. It's, it's the strongest point in the Fletcher-Munson curve, meaning what our ears are most sensitive to. So if we can hear things clearly in that range, we can always intelligibly understand what people are saying. I'm not super familiar with USB microphones. I'm working in a sphere of audio where even the cheaper microphones are a couple shades up from that quality range. I was just having a conversation with my sister about this because she's looking to buy a USB mic. I recommended the Audio-Technica just because I'm familiar with that brand. And I know that they always make 
good stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's my recommendation. But I would say as long as you're getting something that has a reasonable reputation, then you can't really go wrong. Uh, I wouldn't gamble with something nobody's heard of in the USB microphone world, though. Okay, cool. Well, then, I think that's enough about microphones. One thing I think is really confusing to a a newcomer to audio production is preamps. Like, what is a preamp? Why is a preamp important? What does it do? You know, and obviously preamps come built into most interfaces. And so what are you looking for when you're looking for a preamp? And and, uh, what are your thoughts on preamps? How technical should I get on this? (laughs) Okay, so... In order for your sound to become a digital sound and get recorded into a computer, you need a conversion system. And those converters need a certain amount of amplitude of signal in order to properly read what's coming into them. Unfortunately, microphones are very, very low output sources. They are called mic level sources for obvious reasons, and they are low. So a pre-amplifier is something that amplifies the signal before getting to the digital audio conversion. So it is an amplifier in front of that step. The pre-amplifier is going to take that microphone level signal and turn it into what's called a line level signal. Now, in order to do this, you have to put in some kind of a gain stage, and the quality of that gain stage will affect the quality of the signal coming out the other end. So a preamp is an integral part of this entire process. It is literally recreating the sound based on the sound that is coming into it. And so if your preamp is dud, you will get something that does not sound good at all. And if your preamp is great, even a not so great microphone will usually sound pretty good going through a really good preamp. Yeah, if you even a good microphone, like even a U87, you put it through a garbage preamp, you're not going to get a very good sound out of it. No, I mean, it's going to be a little bit on the thin side. Um, usually people will do something like they'll buy an expensive microphone like a U87 and they'll plug it directly into one of those portable interfaces and the preamp chips in those portable interfaces do not really get the appropriate amount of power to have a consistent signal. And so the signal ends up actually cone filtering itself because of the power sag. And it sounds hollow, which is not what you want from a $3,000 microphone. Yeah, okay. So then moving from preamps into audio interfaces, you know, I said that the audio, a lot of audio interfaces come with preamps. How do you go about selecting a, an interface that has a good preamp? Is it by brand name or how do you know if it has a good preamp in it? Are there affordable interfaces, even dual channel or quad channel interfaces that you you think might be a good recommendation? And then also, what are your thoughts about maybe getting external preamps and then taking the line level from those external preamps and putting them into your interface? So all interfaces, all prosumer level interfaces generally will have a preamp chip built into the front end. And they're almost always all bad. I've never heard one where I've been like, that sounds great. There's some where it sounds okay. The Apogee Duet sounds okay. The Mbox 3 sounds okay. And Slate Digital just put out a interface with a preamp. And I know from the quality of the build and having discussed with Steven what's going in there, and it's a good quality chip. So I imagine it would sound pretty good. But outside of those, I mean, and those are going to be the interface combos. It's just, it's only one little op amp. And to have a really sustainable quality power going into a signal, you really need a designated power source. You will need a feedback circuit of some sort to kind of control what's going on. And so there's just not enough real estate in an interface to traditionally have a decent preamp. 
Okay. For externals, I do think that that's probably the way to go. And it doesn't have to be a great external preamp. Pretty much anything in the two to $400 category is probably going to be a little better than what's built into the interface. The other side of the interface is the uh, analog to digital conversion or the digital analog conversion. Uh, is there a variety of quality? Yeah, the Apollo is maybe a little bit better than some of the other ones. The Mbox, again, is pretty decent. The Apogee, again, is pretty decent. But they're all sort of within the same realm of quality overall. Okay, and that's that has to do with some more complicated things with sample rate and bit depth and... Well, no, it doesn't really have to do with sample rate and bit depth. It actually has to do with the front-end componentry that's going in there. Basically, the interface game is a consumer-level game. It's not marketed to people who are recording in studios. It's marketed to people who are recording either while they're traveling or people who are doing lower-budget kind of stuff. Okay. And so the the race to the bottom is very much alive in interfaces where people are trying to make the best quality interfaces they can for the absolute cheapest price. Mm-hmm. And that comes with compromises. That comes with sound compromises. And that's where you see with these USB microphones, they have the interface built into the microphone itself. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and that's something we could could have probably just talked the whole time on was just was those type of things. And I think that's the the problem that a lot of podcasters are are getting into because unless they at first are really wanting to they know they're going to make money off of it. Their budget a lot of times is like $200 to to even start with, you know. Well, that's the other side of the the podcasting thing too that you can't really control is like I'm talking into my laptop mic because I'm I'm too lazy to set up the whole rigmarole to get you know, good quality recording in here. And there's not much you can do about the guy on the other end of the interview, you know? Uh-huh. Not unless you pester him or that's not send him something in the mail or <laughs> that's that's yeah, still there's... not necessarily gonna help. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but those those kind of things, at least from the interview standpoint, is I think those are sort of conventions that people are used to. Yeah. Um and we're, you know, and we're going to have some episodes on how to work with telephone interviews and Skype interviews and things like that. But the other thing that is a big concern is the DAWs. Um, and a lot of people don't even know what a DAW is. Their brains just shut off when you mention that word to them. And so I would say the Yeti seems to be the most popular microphone for podcasters right now. And the DAW that seems to be the most popular is either Audacity for PC users or GarageBand for Mac users. Um, and so I wanted to know if you have any thoughts on, on those DAWs or experience even with those and how those compare to, you know, the professional ones like, um, Avid products or Steinberg or Adobe. When it comes to doing strictly speech recording, you don't really need to differentiate between your digital audio workstations too much. There's no real reason to go up to something like Pro Tools or Cubase or anything like that. Uh, GarageBand would be fine. And I know that some people might get a little precious about that kind of stuff, but actually it is. And I mean, I've cut records for platinum artists in GarageBand. It's not my preference because I don't like the editing functions as much. And the way that it handles processing is a little bit more encumbered than something like Pro Tools. But, you know, when you're doing a podcast, you're not really dealing with more than a couple tracks of audio. So for that, actually, GarageBand is fine. I'm not familiar with Audacity, but I reckon that it's fine too. The reason why it works out is because the brunt of your sound quality is going to come from your signal processing, not from the DAW itself. 
So with most of these open architecture type things, you have either AU format or VST format where the quality of the, the processors are the same across the board, regardless of what DAW you're using. Hmm. Okay. And, and when you say VST, you're referring to the plugins or the effects that you would for post-production of, of putting compressors or reverbs or things like that on your on your voice? Correct. Okay. And, and podcasters, that's the other thing. The effects that they're probably concerned in are going to be compression or multiband compression or limiting or gates, things more in the dynamic realms of, of effects. So that's interesting. I was wondering about that. So the, uh, the, the design or the codec, I guess it's a coding thing that makes it the same, whether you're using it in GarageBand and you can get those access to those plugins and any DAW? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's different formats to a certain degree, but those formats are like coding shells. There's AAX, AU, VST, and a couple that I'm forgetting, uh, Artaz and things like that. But those are literally just shells for the actual sub-architecture of the plugin itself. The algorithms that go into the quality of the signal processor are going to be the same across the board. And there's really no difference in terms of the quality. Oh, so that that's very interesting. I think that is a hopeful thing for people on a budget and definitely probably also explains why Audacity and GarageBand are so useful because most of the time it's just two dudes that want to talk about something, you know? Yeah. But I think that it's important to at least understand some of these things. And that brings me to the final things I wanted to talk about was just compression and compression versus limiting and why compression is so important and maybe some concerns and uses that you could see a a podcaster having with compression? Uh, Compression is a confusing topic, I think. And I think that's why people struggle with it. But basically, compression is something that takes the loudest parts of the signal and turns them down to make them a little bit more even with the quieter parts of the signal. In other words, it compresses the range of the audio, hence the word compressor. So a limiter is a type of compressor. However, it's a type of compressor that's designed specifically to act over very, very short periods of time. And it's mainly meant for controlling things that have sudden quick bursts of energy, like if I accidentally dropped my computer or something like that, or if I leaned in, or if I just suddenly went, ah, really loud, you know, a limiter would be good to catch that kind of stuff. In the world of speech processing, I don't recommend using too much limiting. It's not really necessary. The better solution is to have a gentle but affected range of compression. So I can just spout off my general go-to settings for speech, and these will work very, very frequently. Obviously, you might need to change a few things here or there, depending on the vocalists themselves. But... For most speaking voices, if you set a compressor at 4 to 1, you set your attack time at about 20 milliseconds, you set your release time at about 100 milliseconds, and if you can find a curve that's something called like an optical curve, that's usually best, but if not, uh, soft knee or medium knee compression is really the way to go, or just, you know, whatever your compressor does at that point, the curve is not quite as important. And you usually want to be hitting somewhere between about 3 to 6 dB of gain reduction on the louder parts. And that'll usually get you in the ballpark of what you want. Why do you do this? So just that the person listening is not constantly being jarred by the natural fluctuations of speech level that people will have. Yeah. And then I guess uh, some of the concerns that might happen if you were to over compress would be, like you mentioned, the quiet noises will get louder. So if you are in a noisy room, 
then your noisy room is going to get noisier, I guess. Sure. I have, for example, a heater running in the background because it's winter time and it's got mm-hmm. this, you know, this low droning white noise ish kind of a thing happening with too much compression. You're going to start hearing a lot of that and you're going to start hearing it release. And that's called breathing. You'll start hearing a start coming up. couple other things that can happen from over compression is the natural noises that are made by a mouth the type of stuff the breathing kind of stuff that all starts to come forward when you start to really over compress things that's kind of hard to do unless you set your threshold really really low on the compressor and you're just grabbing way too much of the signal in music that's more of an issue because we use a lot of compression in music and so we do have to watch that kind of stuff but in speech if you're doing that much compression you something has gone awry <laughs> okay um and then finally i guess is just uh the limiting in terms of mastering and then in terms of exporting and maybe any tips what are things you can do in GarageBand or you know any daw as you're exporting to sort of prep your final track Well, one thing I wouldn't leave out on the individual voices is an EQ. So, for example, you're getting my voice through a laptop speaker. Using an equalizer can help that a lot in terms of making it sound like a more natural voice. An equalizer is called an equalizer because it is meant to equalize the tone. So if I have a a vocalist that's overly bright or a capture that's overly mid-rangey or overly bassy, an equalizer is what's used to help it sound like it should sound. In podcasting in particular, where you want to be able to have your audience hear you even when they're in traffic, for example, remember I mentioned that 1 to 3K range, sometimes it's nice to actually bump a little bit extra into that 1 to 3K range, might put a little bit of a telephonic quality to the vocal, but it's going to help it translate across sources like laptop speaker playback, high traffic noise areas in a car, you know, that kind of stuff where you still want people to be able to hear the content. So a little bit of extra love in that range can sometimes really help too. In terms of the final export and things like that, um, yeah, limiters are to just kind of keep everything in check just to make sure that there's nothing that's spiking. And a, a little bit of limiting can sometimes be used to raise the overall level of the podcast without causing something called clipping. If you push your output into the red, the sound is going to distort. However, you can put a limiter on your output and you can push the level up a little bit. I don't recommend doing this too hard because of what we said before, where you start getting all of those low level noises coming forward. So at first it sounds great because it's loud as can be. And so, you know, it's going to sound loud in the car and coming out of laptop speakers or wherever somebody's listening. But the problem is that it stops sounding pleasing after a while, all the noise comes up and the limiter will start to distort on its own as well. But a little bit of limiter limiting, like one to two dB of, of gain reduction to get the signal a little bit louder is not always a bad thing. Uh, and then in terms of exporting, as far as an MP3 goes, just set all of the quality to the highest it'll absolutely go. Okay, cool. EQ I've found in talking with people who are brand new to audio is it's so bewildering to them. You know, they just, they're like, what do you mean? Like, so I have two for sale tutorials. One is called mixing with compression. One is called mixing with EQ. Now for podcasters, I think mixing with compression is way too music oriented. 
to be really beneficial. They could probably watch about a quarter of that and get everything that they need to know. So I'm not recommending that one. But mixing with EQ, really, EQ is the same idea across the board. And so that one, it's while there is music content as the examples, I think would be useful for learning EQ for podcast applications as well. Okay, and where can we find this? The for sale landing page is mixingwitheq.com. Okay, great. Because that's something, like I said, the EQ, but at the same time, it it seems very overwhelming, but I think once you get into it, once they watch your video, once they check out your product especially, do a little more research into it, they'll find that it's, it's not as bewildering as it seems. No. The trick is knowing what to listen for. And once you understand what to listen for, it's not that tough. Yeah, I think that's great. And, you know, I just, again, want to thank you so much for stopping by and helping out these little podskinators get better at at podcasting and really appreciate it. And how can we find you on YouTube and in other places? Okay, so easiest places are either going directly to theproaudiophiles.com, which is where I do a lot of educational content. Uh, or if you're on YouTube, you can just type in the Pro Audio Files and it'll come up. And there's hundreds of videos depending on what you're looking for. So plenty of stuff. All right. Well, I really appreciate you coming by today. And uh, thanks so much. Hey, thanks for having me, Stephen. The Pod Show.